Thank you, Steve. It is great to be here. Steve's one of my favorite guys. I love listening to him speak. I always get good things out of his messages. And, uh, but thanks for the topic, uh, money, giving. Uh, everybody loves to hear about this, right? I know this can be an intimidating topic for us. Two little kids are in a hospital lying on stretchers next to each other outside the operating room. First kid leans over and asks, what are you in here for? Second kid says, I'm here to get my tonsils out, and I'm a little nervous. The first kid says, you got nothing to worry about. I had that done when I was four. They put you to sleep when you wake up. They'll give you jello and ice cream. It's a breeze. So the second kid said, well, thanks. I feel better. By the way, what are you in here for? First kid says, a circumcision. Whoa, good luck, buddy, said the second kid. Had that done when I was born. Couldn't walk for a year. The topic we're talking about today can be scary and painful, but hopefully it's not crippling. If you're already feeling yourself tensing up, let me give you three good reasons to just relax and take a deep breath. First, God doesn't need a single penny from your pocket. He never has and never will need anything from you. Second, what God wants is not your wallet. He wants you. Simple as that. And third, no one is judging you this morning. I am sensitive to the reality that some of you are at complete peace with your giving, but many of you feel guilty, embarrassed, uh, conflicted, uh, even prideful about your giving habits. We all have something to learn. So it's always good to begin with the basics. Two coaching legends were famous for focusing on the fundamentals. Six months before the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing to win the NFL championship, Vince Lombardi began the season by holding a pigskin in his right hand and stating, gentlemen, this is a football. And John Wooden, who coached UCLA to 10 of its 11 NCAA titles, the most in history, was known for beginning the season by teaching his players how to print on their socks and tie their shoes. Sound silly? He said his technique helped them prevent blisters and kept shoes from becoming untied to circumstances that might force a player out of the game. If you skip the basics, you're not going to understand the advanced material. You need to know arithmetic before you can learn algebra. You need to know anatomy before you can start surgery. So the most basic stewardship principle of all is introduced in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God is the creator, he's the owner, right? Psalm 24, 1 and 2 echoes this reality. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So God is the creator and we are the curators, we're the caretakers. We're the custodians. He is the maker. We are the managers. He is the owner. We are the overseers. This is like putting on your stewardship socks and tying your stewardship shoes. But even when we know and believe the most basic stewardship principle of all, it's easy to lose sight of, partly because of language shortcuts we use, Steve actually brought up the language issue in his excellent message last week about going to church. In this case, we say 
my house, my car, my money, instead of the house, the car, the money, the Lord has entrusted into my care to manage for his purposes, his glory, and his kingdom. Now, it's okay to use language shortcuts, but don't ever forget that it all belongs to God and you are merely the manager. Here's the second fundamental truth. Especially here in America, God has entrusted a whole lot into our care. Listen to this. The eight richest people in the world have as much wealth as the bottom half of the world's population, right? So eight people are worth as much as three and a half billion people. Now, none of those eight people attend Vero Christian, um, but that's okay because I did some research and discovered we are a very rich group, comparatively speaking. If you have a net worth of $3,500, you are worth more than half the people on the planet. And let's say you're worth $200,000 on paper. That sounds like a lot of money, but uh, there are plenty of people in here who, who have a net worth of that much. That's more than 95% of the total population. This is the one that always gets me when it comes to income. If you earn $32,000 a year, it's about $15 an hour working full-time, do you know that you make more than 99% of the people in the world? You didn't know you were in the 1%, did you? I think we're doing pretty well. When the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present world to be generous and willing to share, we might want to pay attention especially when our generosity to Christ's church will help make disciples, build the kingdom, and show God that we love him more than we love money. A third fundamental truth is this. When you like money, as most of us do, or love money, which is dangerous, there's never enough, and that could lead to trouble. One problem is that when you always want more, it's hard to give any away. Zig Ziglar once said, I want all the good things money cannot buy and some of the good things money can buy. That makes sense to me. It's a fair statement. Money, like fire or wind, can serve or destroy us. But when we're often motivated to accumulate more money for unhealthy reasons. One reason we want more is pride and prestige. Look at me. I'm important. I am successful. I'm cool. I've got it together. I have things you don't have. I go places you don't go. I do things you can't do, and I know people you don't know. A second reason we want more is fear and insecurity. Money will protect me. It will solve my problems, keep me from excessive pain and suffering, and give me some peace of mind. Your nest egg becomes a security blanket. And a third reason we want more is unhappiness and discontentment. I'm missing something in my life, and there's a product on some shelf in some store that can make me happy. Realize there's a vast conspiracy orchestrated by savvy marketing, marketing experts to make you feel inferior and deserving of more than you currently possess. And because they know exactly how human desires are activated, you are practically defenseless. Through commercials and ubiquitous propaganda, they dangle the good life before your eyes and promise it can all be yours if you just buy their product. It's like holding a biscuit in front of your dog. 
the dog is defenseless, right? It goes into a trance until it's chewing on that little treat. The dog loves his treat, but five seconds later, he wants another one. I know, we've got two golden retrievers. I've, I've seen this in action. Ecclesiastes 5.10 warns us, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. You see, more doesn't bring lasting satisfaction or happiness. The World Values Survey of 2007 revealed that people in Vietnam whose per capita income is less than $5,000 were just about as happy as people in France who earned $22,000 a year. Question, who's happier? The cattle herding Maasai people of, of Kenya or the Inuit people of Northern Greenland or American multimillionaires? The answer is all of the above are equally happy. Another fascinating study done by Boston College surveyed the super rich. These are people with assets of $25 million or more. That's a lot of money, right? They discovered that most of these people felt discontented and considered themselves financially insecure. You believe that? That's like Miss Universe looking in the mirror and thinking she's ugly. Or Tom Brady thinking he's an average quarterback. <laughs> I hated him for as long as I could hate him, but you got to respect the guy. You got to respect him. Do you know that uh, these super rich people revealed that in order to feel secure, guess what they needed? More, right. They needed about 25% more than what they had. You know, more isn't better, and the best things in life aren't things, and a lot of you know that because you would give anything in the world to have your health back, to be, to, to be where you used to be health-wise, or to see your child on the right check, or, or grandchild uh, doing the things you know that grandchild should do, or have the relationship with your spouse that you always wanted. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on guard. Against all kinds of greed, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I love Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That is a great prayer to pray. It's also very helpful to remember the temporal nature of our earthly lifespans and our possessions. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, and you can't take it with you. First Chronicles 29.15 says, Your days on earth are a shadow gone so soon without a trace. James 4.14 says, You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Poof. The clock ticks. The calendar turns. We thought we had more time. No, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, and you can't take it with you. Ecclesiastes 5.15 tells us, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. That might be why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Like me, you've probably heard that verse a thousand times if you've been going to church your whole life. But its truth came alive to me a couple of years ago when thieves broke into our house in broad daylight and stole every piece of valuable jewelry we owned. The wedding ring I bought Marianne 38 years ago, her mother's wedding ring from 74 years ago, her grandmother's wedding ring from about a century ago, all the family heirlooms, anything that was worth anything, anything nice I ever bought her, they cleaned us out. Now, Marianne has told me to never buy her expensive jewelry again. And I guess I can live with that. I mean, <laughs> but in all seriousness, in hindsight, we wish we would have given that all away to help build God's kingdom before thieves had a chance to break in and steal it. I, I do believe God wanted to teach me something there. So you can't take it with you. And even while you're alive, it doesn't last very long, does it? I mean, how long is it going to be before your next iPhone upgrade? Your stuff has a short shelf life. When I was 17, I spent the summer working in the back of a garbage truck, picking up trash. It is still one of my favorite jobs of all time that I've ever had. Old man Carl drove, and I hung on for dear life back there. It was it was awesome riding on the back of that truck, but it was nonstop heavy labor, and it was hot. I picked up bag after bag after bag. I don't mean to brag, but I got pretty good at it, right? If there was only one bag sitting there, Carl wouldn't even stop the truck. He would just slow down. I would reach over, kind of hang over, grab that bag, and I would swing it backwards, and then swing it forward to gain momentum, and swing it backwards again, and fling it behind my back into the hopper, and we would just cruise. We would, we would keep going. So the only time I got to rest was when the truck filled up and we had to make the 15-mile drive to the dump to unload it. My first time at the dump, well, I just couldn't believe it. I had never smelled that kind of smell before. I had never seen mountains of rotting stuff, because back in that day, they just piled it high. I reminisced about that wonderful summer. It was the same summer I proposed to my wife. I knew she would say yes. I was her knight in shining garbage. I, I wrote this poem that I call Ode to a Landfill. "'Twas a trip to the landfill, and all I could see were piles of garbage and trash and debris. All of what once was so shiny and bright now is rusty and dusty and covered with blight. Washers and dryers and old eight-track tapes Mama's broke vacuum and out-of-date drapes. Papa's old Chevy had four on the floor. Now here it rots, because it don't run no more. Furniture, hot tubs, computers and clothes, iPods and snow skis and pot-bellied stoves, all of the things that we once held so near, waste away, rot away, rust away here. It's said one man's trash is another man's treasure, but none of this junk will bring anyone pleasure. The things that we buy... With the money we earn, when will we learn? It's all going to burn. Folks, your stuff has a short shelf life. 
So with those three fundamental truths covered, I want to spend our remaining time this morning answering three questions. First, why should I give to the church? Second, when should I start giving? And third, how much should I give? And let's start with why should I give to the church? The first part of this question is why should I give? Well, when you give, you will be obeying God's word. You will learn to trust God more. You will be helping others in need. You will be fueling the growth of God's kingdom. You will learn to overcome fears of, and, and insecurity. You will feel the joy of obedience and doing what you know is right, what you know you really want to do deep down in your heart. You will be expressing gratitude and praise to God. There's a story in Luke 17 about 10 lepers that Jesus healed. Only one, a Samaritan, came back to thank him. And the Bible says Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Now, there is no doubt in my mind that all 10 of these healed lepers were thankful. They had to be. This was a horrible disease that ostracized them from their community they were jumping for joy. They were thrilled. They were thankful. The point is that only one actually expressed his gratitude in a tangible way to one who, who provided the healing. Giving is a tangible way to express our gratitude to God. It's not the only way, but it is a meaningful way. Here's something else. When you give, you will be healthier and happier. Studies show that, in general, the more generous Americans are, the more likely they are to be happy. And the less generous, the less happy. I have witnessed this reality over many, many years of helping churches raise money. I can tell you the Harvard scientists who did this study, they are right on here. This is true. The happiest people I know are the most generous people I know. Why do you think Jesus said it's more blessed than to give than to receive? Blessed means happy. That's what it means. So generous people tend to receive back goods that are even more valuable than those they gave. Happiness, health, a sense of purpose in life, and personal growth. You know, we were created as image bearers of God, and we are never more like him than when we give. He is the great giver. He is the generous one. So we have many good reasons to give, but why give to the church? Did you know that there are over one and a half million nonprofit charities that you can support financially in this country? That's a lot. There are a lot of good causes that make a difference. There are schools, hospitals, and food banks that train, heal, and feed people. Good people doing good things all over the place. Thank God for organizations like these. But there's nothing like the local church. It is a one-of-a-kind, organized organism. It's alive. It is the body and the bride of Christ. Let's acknowledge that the church isn't perfect. Nobody knows that more than I do. I've been to more churches than probably anybody here, and, and I've seen, you know, stuff. Let's just say that. But there is no perfect organization or business or family or person. There's good, bad, and ugly everywhere. Um, people use this as an excuse sometimes not to give, but also not to attend church. I think that's a mistake because the church is the body 
and bride of Christ. There is nothing else like the church. The church matters. One well-known pastor wrote, there is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heal, heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. The potential of the local church is almost more than I can grasp. That's why we give to the church. Question two, when should I start giving? Here's what I know. Most people want to be generous, but historically only about half the people attending any, any given church in America give anything to their church. The other half give nothing. This is, this is a fact, okay? Research back to this. For one reason or another, they give nothing. And, you know, you can always rationalize or find a loophole that will get you out of giving. We've always had a no-name-calling policy in our house. Now, with four kids, they're, they're grown up now, but occasionally while we were raising them, there was a disagreement or a little tension in the house. And one day, many years ago, our little Melissa was four or five years old at the time. She was so frustrated with one of her older sisters, she couldn't hold it in any longer. She cleverly found a loophole around our policy and blurted, Melanie, if I could call you a pig, I would call you a pig. But I'm not allowed. She ended up in the legal profession, that girl. Some of us might be tempted to say, if I could give, I, I would give, really. But I'm on a fixed income. Or I'm still raising kids. You know how expensive that is. Or I'm trying to get out of debt. Or I'm saving for retirement. Every single one of us could find a loophole that would justify holding back instead of releasing freely. So, when do you think you should start giving or increase your level of generosity? You can start when you get your budget figured out or when you get your next raise or when you pay off the minivan or better yet, the mortgage. When you pay off the house, it'll be easier to give then, right? You can start when you have the kids' college tuition set aside or when your retirement is fully funded or simply when you think you have enough or Maybe you just wait until you're dead. You're not taking anything with you then. You see, you have to make the decision on when to start giving. To me, the easiest option is just to start now. That's just the no-brainer of it all. Remember, even people with $25 million don't feel financially secure. So if you're waiting for the false feeling of financial freedom, well, that day ain't never coming, folks. Question three, how much should I give? Well, what do you think? That's what the psalmist wonders. In Psalm 116, 12, uh, the Bible says, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? You can take your pick from these biblical examples. The widow gave a penny. The Pharisees gave a tenth, that's called a tithe. Zacchaeus gave half. The rich man was asked to give it all. The early church shared everything in common. Barnabas sold a field. Jesus' disciples left their boats and their nets and followed him. 
And 1 Chronicles 22.14 says, King David took great pains to provide for the temple. God enables some of us to give a lot. God enables some of us to give a little. But God enables all of us to give something. The amount the Bible mentions most frequently is a tithe or 10% of one's income. But for some people in certain situations, that, that might not be the appropriate amount. I don't have time to dissect and judge every possible personal scenario, but my point here is that the question, how much should I give, is sometimes better asked, how much should I keep? Some people have way more than they would ever need, and they should consider giving more. In Philippians 4, verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us he learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether he was well-fed or hungry, whether he was living in plenty or in want. So he knew feast, and he knew famine. And here's what Paul recommends. This is found in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. He says, each man, each person, should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Maybe you start right there. Decide to give the amount that makes your heart smile or even giggle. You'll be happy. God will be happy. Everyone will be happy. The happiest people I know are the most generous people I know. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the truth of your word and how it... Um, inspires us and encourages us. Sometimes it convicts us, of course, but we know that everything in it is good for us. And so we ask this morning that um, you help us open our hearts so that the Holy Spirit can change what needs to be changed, can comfort what needs to be comfort, um, can convict where we need to be convicted. And God, I'm so thankful. I'm, I'm just, I'm standing here uh, among a group of people, some of whom have been uh, models of generosity through their entire life. Thank you so much for how they set an example to us. Um, thank you for giving us so many things. Oftentimes, we don't even know what to do with them. Uh, Father, may we mobilize our, our money, our resources, our time, our talents, so that they can be used better for your kingdom. This is our prayer. In the name of our great and glorious Savior, the best gift of all, Jesus Christ. Amen.